If you've not already done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. We're going to be using that as our text today. And you can keep your finger there, though we're going to be looking at several different other passages. This is going to be the basis of our lesson this morning. And uh, Mike, I liked your joke about Nahum. You know, uh, in case you didn't understand where he was going with with that, um, if you don't know where Micah is, you probably don't know where Nahum is either. Uh, but anyway, the Minor Prophets are, are books that we don't study very often. Uh, they're called Minor Prophets because they are, are prophets who have just little short uh, prophecies in the Bible, as opposed to the major prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, these were uh, prophets that uh, wrote just a little bit of something that, um, that is in our Bibles, but yet at the same time, sometimes in these Minor Prophets are the most profound statements. And such is the case with Micah. Here in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, we have a very profound statement, but perhaps one of the most beautiful statements that we have in God's Word. And for emphasis sake, even though we've read it several times, I want to read it again from the NIV. It says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What's interesting about the Minor Prophets is that so many of the Minor Prophets' names reflected what their message was about. When we think about prophets, we often think about people foretelling the future. But an Old Testament prophet, like a New Testament prophet, not only told the future in some circumstances, but the main reason they were called a prophet was because they revealed to the people who were living during their time period the will of God, or they had a message for God. Another word for prophet would be preacher during this time, though I'm not a prophet because I don't have God's will revealed to me. But yet at the same time, a prophet was a very powerful preacher. And oftentimes their names would reflect their message. And so here we have a man by the name Micah, whose name literally means, Who is like God? And it's not saying that he is like God. The question's being asked. Who is like God? Or who is God? And here at the very end of the closing section of the book of Micah, Micah brings up his name. Brings up the idea of what he has been called his entire life. And he asks the question, Who is like God? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting to anybody to have a big discussion about who is like God, but the point that he's making is there is nothing, there is no one, there is nothing that exists in the universe that is like God. God is unique. There is nothing like Him. He is the only being that exists that's like Him. And as we go through the Bible, we understand and appreciate this. We serve a God, a God that is someone who is a creator. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
We serve a God that determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. We serve a God that for he is the one from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. He is a unique God, a very wonderful God. He is a God that now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. It's no wonder then, Moses says in Exodus chapter 15, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? When we ask the question, who is like God? The answer comes back with a definitive, no one, nothing. There is only one God and there is nothing like Him. He is the Creator. He is the Amazing One. He is the One that does all things for us. But the emphasis of the text when Micah asks this question, he wants us to understand and appreciate the fact of the redemption that comes from God. Who is a God like you when it comes to redemption? Notice he says, who pardons sins. Who is a God like that? Who is a God that forgives transgression? Who is a God that delights to show mercy? Who is a God that has compassion upon us? Who is a God that tread our sins underfoot and hurls all our iniquities into the depths of the sea? That's the emphasis that Micah wants us to think about when he asks the rhetorical question, who is like God? And so this morning, I want us to spend some time talking about the God of incomparable forgiveness. As we look at this passage in Micah chapter 7 and start to break it down and look at its different parts, we discover a God of incomparable forgiveness. The point being that when God forgives, He forgives like no one else. And the reasons why God forgives are like no one else. And the way that God forgives is like no one else. As we think of the name Micah, the thing that Micah wants us to remember about his book and about his name, when he asks the question, who is like unto God? He wants us to think about the great scheme of redemption that God has provided for us. So as we start thinking about this passage, first thing I want us to think about is there is nothing that compares to the wonders of God's forgiveness. If you are a Christian here today, if you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the things that you should just sit and ponder and think about and let it overwhelm your mind and your heart, let it be something that just completely amazes you is the fact that God forgives us. Sometimes people will be thinking about God and thinking about the different ways that God responds to mankind. And sometimes people uh, will ponder the question, uh, will a loving God really judge anyone? Will a loving God really punish everyone? Will a loving God, will He really make people pay for their sins in the long run? Well, that's a question that could be asked, and, and we can ponder it. But the thing that astounds me, that the thing that amazes me is when you think about who God is 
And when you think about what sin is, and then you think about what the penalty should be, it's amazing to me, it astounds me, it overwhelms me, it boggles the mind that God would ever forgive us in the first place. As you start going through the Bible and you start thinking about the way that God looks at sin, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, the section begins, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination to Him. And the point that's being made there is the fact that all sin, perfectly sin, is against God. And he gives us some examples here, but I want to make sure you see the point that the passage is making in the King James. That any sin is an abomination to God. God is a holy God and it can't be in His presence. It is an abomination to Him. Abomination is a word we don't use very often, we don't think about very much. But abomination carries with it the most disgusting, the most abhorrent, the most awful thing that we could ever come in contact with. And that's how that God looks at sin. God cannot tolerate sin. It is an abomination to Him. But the Bible goes on and says, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Sometimes we think about sin, and we think about sin being something that is little or big. We think about sin maybe having greater consequences than other sins, having lesser consequences. But we need to understand that sin is sin as far as God is concerned. And whether you think your sins are little or whether you think your sins are big, we need to understand that once we sin, it is worthy of death. We're reminded by the prophet Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But we're also reminded of the fact that everyone who breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness. In other words, God set forth the law in the Old Testament, and His purpose in setting forth the law is to make sure we appreciate the gravity and the wrongness of sin. And so we need to understand that the first time that we sin, regardless of what that sin may be, we have broken the law of God. We have broken the law of God forever. And there's no way we can change that. And in fact, we find out when we read in the book of James, in James chapter 2 and verse 10, For whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now think about that for a moment. Your sins may not be as bad as other people's sins, Your sins may not carry the consequences that some other sins do. But what James is telling us and how God looks at sin and how that God looks at the transgression of the law, if you break the law in one point, it's like you've broken it in every single way the law has been expressed. If you have ever sinned in your life, you're guilty of murder. If you have ever sinned in your life, you're guilty of lying. And the list could go on and on and on because maybe you have not committed those particular sins, but once you've broken the law, you've broken the law. Once you've sinned, you have sinned. And a just and holy God cannot tolerate that sin. And it's like we have broken every single law that God has ever laid down in His righteousness, that God has ever laid down in His holiness. We have broken every single one of those laws. 
And so it's no wonder, it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. The godliness and the wickedness of men is not stated in degrees, but all of us without God, without the blood of Jesus Christ, are godless and wicked because we have broken the law, we have sinned. And verse 32 of the same chapter, God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. God being who He is, a righteous and holy God, because sin is an abomination to Him, the only outcome has to be death. God's righteousness decrees it. He cannot tolerate sin. And therefore, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. No matter how you look at it, sin is sin. It's an abomination to God. And the only outcome of our sins is death. And so when I start thinking about all these passages that we, are, we have been reading, and we start thinking about what Micah has said here, for who is a God like unto you? I am amazed, I am astounded. The mind is boggled when we think about the fact that still God being who He is, and we start thinking about who we are. How in the world can God forgive sin? Who is a God like unto you? This boggles the mind, but yet, beginning with the book of Genesis and going all the way through the book of Revelation, is an unfolding scheme of redemption where God is showing mankind that He wants to forgive them. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when that very first sin is committed, a promise is made that that woman would have a child and from that child would come someone who may bruise his heel, but he would crush the head of Satan. He would defeat Satan. He would defeat sin. And all through the rest of the book of Genesis and all through the rest of the Bible and revealed in the New Testament through the Gospels and explained further in the epistles, we have the unfolding scheme of redemption of how that God wants to forgive mankind. He wants to. And the question from Micah comes out again, who is a God like unto you? But that thing's the next thing that's in the text. The basis for His forgiveness is His unique mercy and compassion. Notice what the text says once again. It says, when Micah asked this question, He delights to show us mercy. He has compassion on us. And when you add that to the question, who is like a God unto you? We have to add to it, Who is a God like unto you that has so much delight in forgiving our sins? Who is a God like unto you that has so much compassion that you're willing to forgive our sins? And once again, it's a rhetorical question and the answer comes back, there is no one that's like you when it comes to delight in forgiving our sins. There's no one like you as far as compassion is concerned. We, as we live through this life, we have opportunities to forgive people. 
Sometimes it's because of what a family member has done. Maybe it's because of what a co-worker has done or a neighbor. Most of the time, it's probably something uh, that a brother or sister of Christ has done. And we forgive this person because in because of compassion. I don't know how many times we delight in it, but we forgive this person out of compassion. But look how oftentimes we look at a situation and we look at forgiveness when it comes to other people. We oftentimes ask our question, ask the question in our minds, uh, is this person worth forgiving? Uh, Has this person, is, is he deserving or she deserving of my forgiveness? Have, have they in a proverbial way, jump through enough hoops to make me forgive them? Have they asked for my forgiveness? Have they, have they done the right kind of things to make sure that I feel that I am, that they are worthy of my forgiveness? That's how we oftentimes look at forgiveness. We think about worth. We think about, well, what has that person done? Is that person deserving of our forgiveness? But that's the point that Micah is making here. God is a God that we have to ask the question, who is a God like unto you that delights in forgiving sins, that has compassion on it? And the compassion is the epitome of compassion. When you think about the fact that God forgives us even though we're not worth forgiving. You think about how that God forgives us even though we have earned not earn that forgiveness at all. When you think about the fact that we have done nothing to deserve this, compa- uh, this compassion or this forgiveness. When you think about it, it's all by His mercy. It's all by His compassion. It's all by His grace. There's not a single thing we can do or have done to deserve this compassion. And so Micah is astounded by the fact, not only that God forgives us, but He forgives us by grace when we don't deserve it. The Bible puts it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul also adds in the book of Titus, beginning at verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's a description of each and every one of us, whether you think you fit the bill or not, and we've already discovered how God looks at sin. But then we come to that three-letter word, but. But when the kindness And love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Micah asked the question, the same question that we have to ask today too. Who is a God like unto you? that will do something for someone like this, that is described earlier in this passage as being foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved, full of hatred. But God being the God that He is, because of His mercy, 
not because of anything we have done. He has saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. There's an allusion there to John chapter 3 and verse 5. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. So it's no wonder that the same person who wrote this passage would write this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul, just like Micah, couldn't get over the fact of what God had done for him. Paul doesn't state it this way in his text, but he is echoing what Micah said when Micah said, Who is a God like unto thee that has so much delight in forgiving mankind's sins and having compassion upon us? So that brings us to the next thing we want to think about when we think about this question that Micah has asked. There is nothing that can compare to the completeness and the perfection of God's forgiveness. Folks, we need to be reminded of this each and every day. We seem to struggle with this. Sometimes our faith is not strong enough that we fully comprehend and appreciate the fact that once God forgives us, He forgives us completely. He forgives us perfectly. The point that that Micah wants wants us to understand that this is the kind of God that we serve. In fact, look at the text. He says, He will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Micah wants us to appreciate the fact that God being who He is, Because of the fact that He forgives us, He forgives us completely and He forgives us perfectly. He wants us to imagine in in our minds that here we serve a God that takes all of our sins and bundles them up in His arms and He throws them down on the ground and He stomps on those sins until they are uh, obliterated. They disappear. They have been ground into the dirt. But just in case someone say, well, I can still see a remnant of that particular sin on the ground. Micah goes on and says that he takes all these iniquities, all these sins, and he drops them into the depths of the ocean where they sink to the very deepest part of the ocean and they cannot be seen any longer. He wants us to picture in our mind, not just for the sake of, 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 of understanding that God does something with our sins, but the fact that he wants us to understand that we serve a God that forgives our sins completely and perfectly. If there's anything that a Christian sometimes struggles with is that we cannot believe that there is a God like this who does this. But that's the very point that Micah is making. When he asks the rhetorical question, who is a God like unto thee that takes our sins and completely and perfectly removes them forever? That's the God that we serve, and we've got to believe that. But the Bible says it other ways, just in case we think that Micah is the only one who believes this or says this. In Exodus 34 and verse 7, talking about God, it says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Over in the book of Psalms, in Psalms 118, 
It says, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that His mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. You notice here in the King James that it has endureth in italics. It was supplied by the tra- uh, translators because of the fact that the, word, the verses look too choppy. The word endureth is not in the original text. But the idea there is, literally in the, in the, the original language it says, for His mercy is forever. There's not an idea of qualification of enduring. There's the idea of it is forever. Somebody might ask the question, well, how long is forever? How long is eternity? Well, that answer can't be answered because it is no end to it. There's no length to it. There's no ending to it. And so that's the idea here in this psalm. The mercy of God is extended to us forever and ever and ever and ever. It never ends. But the Bible goes on. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. You've heard me discuss this passage in other classes and from this pulpit at other times. But the idea of the fact is that the east will never meet the west. No matter how far you walk east, you'll never run into west. You'll just keep heading east, keep heading east. And the point that's being made by the writer here is that God removes his sins so far from us that we'll never come in contact with those same sins again. Once those sins have been forgiven, they have been forgiven. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be as wool. He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, quoting from the book of Jeremiah, and saying that this is the fulfillment that takes place in Jesus Christ. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. All these things are possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. But once again, think about the question that Micah asked here. Who is like a God unto thee? When it comes to forgiveness, there is only one God, and there is nothing like that one God. Because of His mercy and because of His compassion, He delights in forgiving our sins. And once those sins have been forgiven, they are completely and permanently forgiven, never to be brought up by God Again, but we also need to think about this point this morning. The point of the Bible wants us to understand is that God does not merely excuse sin or ignore it. When He forgives sin, He obliterates it. He erases it from the record. He remembers it no more forever. He not only removes the penalty, He takes away the indictment. That is the lesson that Micah wanted us to learn.
And once again, the question comes back because it boggles the mind. It's hard for us to comprehend. We just can't grasp our brains around it. When Micah asked the question, Who is a God like unto thee that is willing to do all these things? But one final point, and the lesson is yours. But God never forgives those who have not sought his forgiveness and sought it according to God's terms. We need to understand and appreciate this morning as we close the lesson that all these wonderful things that Micah is talking about, all these wonderful things that God has done for us, only happens if we're willing to seek his forgiveness. Only happens if we seek that forgiveness through his terms. Now in Micah's day, you remember in the passage it talks about the remnant of his inheritance. He's talking about the Jewish people there. And the Jewish people, if they were going to receive this uh, forgiveness that comes from God, they were going to have to turn back to him. In the New Testament, this scheme of redemption is provided in a different way. We know the Bible is very clear that if we want to have God's forgiveness, then we need to put our faith and our trust in this God that Micah describes as who is a God like unto thee. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9 reminds us that without faith it is impossible to please God. To he that cometh to God must believe that he is and also a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We sometimes think about the first part of that verse and we forget about the second part of that verse. God wants us not only to believe that He exists, that He is real, but God wants us to believe and have the kind of faith in Him that we know that He will reward us if we diligently seek Him. And this is all brought about through what Jesus Christ has done. And so John chapter 8 and verse 24 says... Jesus speaking, if you do not believe that I am He, meaning He is the one that's been sent to sacrifice for us for our sins, the reward that God has promised, Jesus goes on and says, if you do not believe that I am Him, you will die in your sins. In other words, our salvation is based upon or predicated upon our faith in God, that He is a rewarder to those that seek Him, and those rewards come through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, where does this faith come from? Well, Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 reminds us, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then Paul goes on and says, How then shall we call on Him in whom we have not believed? And how shall we believe without a preacher? And then he goes on and describes how wonderful it is to share the gospel message. But verse 17 is the most important thing we need to think about at this moment. As Paul says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you want to have the kind of faith that God expects from us, and seeks from us to have His forgiveness given, we need to study God's word, we need to listen to God's word, and describe the greatness and goodness of God, and what happens through His Son, Jesus Christ, to make us believe that God truly is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Because who is a God like unto thee? But the Bible also describes that if we want to have this forgiveness, we need to make an about face. We need to make a change. We need to head in a different direction in the direction we were headed before. The word in the Greek for repent is matineo, which means an about face or 180 degrees turn. They use it to describe ships that were heading in one direction and now we're heading in a different direction. 
Paul reminds us there on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. He says, There was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Jesus reminds us in Luke 13 and verse 3, Nay, except ye repent, till you will all likewise perish. But we also need to understand that the Bible describes if we want this forgiveness, we need to be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Over in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul reminds us that if we are going to be saved, we must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God had raised Him from the dead. And then he says in verse 10, he says, For the, with the heart man but believeth, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Faith is the beginning point, but it's expressed in confessing that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus put it this way over Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, when he says that if you will confess me before men on this earth, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. But if you deny me here on this earth before men, I will deny you before my Father which is art in heaven. We were reminded of a beautiful example of this in, in Acts chapter 8. When Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch right before he was baptized, he says, do you believe... And out of his mouth came the most precious words. The eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But once again, the Bible doesn't stop there. If we want God's pardon, if we want his forgiveness, if we want his reward, we are told we must be baptized for the remission of our sins. We saw a passage earlier where Paul brought out the fact that his mercy is extended by the uh, washing of renewal or washing of the re, uh, re, uh, rebirth and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night and said to Jesus, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, You must be born again, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And so it's no wonder on the day of Pentecost, Peter told those that were assembled in Acts 2 and verse 38 that they needed to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. At the very end of the book of Acts, when Paul, who was then called Saul, was told what he needed to do to be saved, in Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias told Saul, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. When Jesus was hanging on the cross... He extended pardon for mankind in Luke 23 and verse 34 when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But even though that pardon was offered, that pardon was not realized, it wasn't accepted until mankind responded to the commands for redemption. The very first gospel sermon, we've already mentioned it briefly, on the day of Pentecost. Peter, as he was preaching to that crowd and convinced them of the fact that this was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross, the fulfillment of prophecy, the performer of miracles, the one who has risen from the dead. He tells those people in Pentecost, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom He crucified, both Lord and Christ. The text says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, Jesus said they didn't know what they were doing. Forgive them. But on the day of Pentecost, they realized what they had done. They had crucified the very Son of God. The pardon was issued from the cross, but the pardon was realized. As verse 41 says, 
And they that gladly received the word of Peter were then baptized. And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. In other words, Peter said to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. The people who responded were forgiven and were added to the Lord's body. But as we leave here today, I want you to think about the fact, I want you to think about the question that Micah asked in this beautiful, beautiful passage. Who is a God like unto thee? It should just boggle our minds, but more importantly, it should fill us with so much gratitude and love when we think about we serve a God who was willing to do this. What a greater blessing than to have forgiveness of sins. What a greater thing than to be pardoned for those sins. But what a greater time than right now, if you have not made yourself available to that pardon, to do it as together we stand and sing the invitation.